You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 332 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. Sorry folks, this episode took a while, but uh, I'll talk a bit more about that in the next one. Uh, Right now I'm outside, it's summer, the birds are chirping. But, uh, you know, let's not delay any further. If you listen to this uh, podcast regularly, you've been waiting far too long for a new episode. And in this episode, my guest is Tamra Lucid. She is a founding member of the experimental rock band Lucid Nation and an author and documentary film producer. She lives in Los Angeles with her husband, Ronnie Pontiac, who appeared recently in episode 330. In the early 1980s, she discovered the book The Secret Teachings of All Ages by metaphysical scholar Manly Palmer Hall. And this led to an improbable seven-year friendship with him. And she wrote about these experiences in the book Making the Ordinary Extraordinary, My Seven Years in Occult Los Angeles with Manly Palmer Hall. We will talk about that, about punk and about Riot Girls. So thanks for being on the podcast. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Can you talk a bit about who you are and, and what you do? I'm Tamara Lucid. I just published a book. Well, the publisher published it. I wrote the book um, called Making the Ordinary Extraordinary. And it was about my experiences in occult Los Angeles and working for Manly Palmer Hall in the 80s and my experiences therein. And I'm also a musician. My band is Lucid Nation. Um, We formed in about mid-90s, early 90s, and um, have been playing ever since. Can you talk a bit about uh, this term Riot Girl and the scene? Because many people who weren't maybe alive back then or too young might not know what it is. Back in Olympia, Washington, there were a group of girls that went to Evergreen College and local girls as well. And they were just shocked at the um, gender bias that they were experiencing. And um, which also coincided with the punk scene. And they thought, well, you know, if any, one of the quotes at the beginning was um, uh, I believe Kathleen Hanna saying, if, and Kathleen Hanna was the, the singer of Bikini Kill, the lead singer, and she stated that if any other group was as oppressed and so obviously oppressed, they would cause a riot. There would be a riot. And Someone shouted, riot girl, and and they took off from there. I believe uh, uh, Allison Wolf came up with the term riot girl. And she is also one of the people that was there and one of the founders. What are your thoughts on like how feminism has evolved? Because I see so it's branched out in so many different branches, uh, uh, and today it's like uh, almost it's very very chaotic you can't just say feminism and everybody assumes you're talking about the same thing like with time it's evolved into many different versions you know i think going back to what i had said you know how does it affect me individually i think the important thing was that that so in the beginnings of the riot girl movement in Olympia. And for me as an individual, it still came down to how do I individually process the concept that I've been indoctrinated into a patriarchal thought tunnel. 
I'm a woman. That's really not cool. So I need to readjust my perspective and the, see the reality of what's happening around me. This is also what you do in trauma work. Um, in other words, using, um, say, a Jungian style, which is what I, I prefer of, of psychoanalysis, how do you develop into a whole functional human being? Um, how do you incorporate feminism for yourself? Um, how has it affected me personally? Um, whether it paid, you're dealing with patriarchal issues or being a feminist. Um, the fact that a woman has to deal with being a feminist, in other words, being pro-woman, is kind of ironic, don't you think? And, um, you know, of course it evolves because humans evolve. It's part of a human evolutionary concept or, or, or be living. <laughs> so it, it, it's going to, um, let's, another way you could probably explain it, maybe it's a little more, um, poetic is think of, of when you learn about feminism and the role of the way women have been treated in society. And you learn that in a classroom. That's like being in a beehive. You go to the hive and you get the information. You go out, you experience life on your own with that information. And you come back to the, the collective with all the pollen you've collected, all the information you've collected, and this elevates the society. You, you bring the good stuff back and go, this works. Let's, let's incorporate this. It works. We'll be better for it. That's, that's what you're kind of, that's, that's why it, it keeps mutating and getting different. And, and we get different ideas of what feminism is. And it isn't just one is, that's the point. It's it's a multifaceted aspect of human psychology. Yeah, and also every every country and in America, I guess every state has gone uh has reached further in this development or not developed at all, depending on where you are. So that's another reason I guess it's different in I mean, a feminist in North Korea is not the same, yes, in California. They have different issues mm. to deal with. You know, that's definitely location has a lot to do with it. They have much different situations to deal with. I always like the fact that uh, uh, the woman who wrote uh, Frankenstein, that her mother was one of the earliest... Mary uh, Wollstonecraft, yeah. Yeah. I was thought it was interesting that her daughter wrote that book because it's if you know that fact it kind of changes your what that book is about and how you can view you can view it from a different perspective. Oh yeah, that that book is loaded. <laughs> the kid had talent. <laughs> I had a very good experience one time. I was in Bournemouth in in England uh, and. I, I was a poor student and I had to take a train and uh, but it was so many hours till the train and I didn't want to I didn't have money to stay in a hotel so I decided just to walk the streets all night and wait for the train and uh, so I ended up in uh, for some reason I just ended up in a cemetery and I saw that there was this big tombstone uh and I wanted to see what cuz it it looked very big so I I, I like, almost like in a horror film, I lit a match to read the name, and the name on the tombstone was Mary Shelley. <laughs> oh my God, that's a wonderful story! Yeah, and what I'm, a perfect way to discover England and Mary Shelley. She would have been so thrilled. Um, original goth, so so goth. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, uh, I, um, can you talk a bit about your what? Why you think? Uh, punk and metaphysics go hand in hand? Well, 
anti-establishment, um, somewhat feminist. If they'd let us in, the guys who wrote most of it, um, I I think that actually um, there's an intellectual aspect to a lot of punk rockers. They're actual perpetual students, but you know they're not comfortable with learning through a corporate structure, if you'll call educational system a corporate structure. Um, it's also a very limited structure. The information you get out of um, all our established institutes of learning are written from, hmm, well, white guy perspective. Um, th these are people who, um, even the ones with good intentions, could not discuss certain aspects of history, let's say, and our human history. So our concept of what we should be is not, what we should know is not there. We're not learning actual history. We're not learning what we actually experienced. So um, a flawed education system. So um, punk rockers tend to get into more um, unorthodox ways of learning. Um, metaphysics is one. Um, it's also a desire to understand human psychology. I think, and, and a, a smart way of understanding humans. Um, that, that was one of the things that I, I really appreciated in punk rock was, was the um, the lifting the veil of illusion and being genuine and being honest and um, a, a little bit um, passionate about what you believe in. It was very much what metaphysicians go through. They're trying to figure out how this stuff works. I want to know the whys and I want to know the hows and I want to know how we can make it better. And I saw a lot of that in, in punk rock. So many people were activists. So many people were, were trying to build a sense of community and a sense of, of, of support. And that was, uh, that's actually a, a lot, happens a lot in metaphysical communities. So they, there are correlations, many correlations between the two. I think it's very funny that uh, like normies or mainstream society often view like uh, a punk rocker or an anarchist or those kinds of people as, as problematic or rowdy or irresponsible. When in fact, I think that if those kinds of people rule the world, it would be a better place. Uh, uh, whereas maybe the... Uh, the the straight guy, the frat boy, is is the ones who rule it now. You know, the ones are who are respected. You know, like the the tie and suit people. Well, I don't know. I I I, I was a big fan of Kobe Bryant. Still am. Um, he could wear an Italian suit like nobody's business, and so I have to admire the Italian suit. Um, however, I think. Most metaphysicians and most punk rockers, I'm going to keep correlating the two, have more sense than to want to be the guys in charge. Um, that that's ugh. we may not we may not like the ones in charge. We have an opinion about that, um, and they're not really that qualified. But the punk rockers, I think, are, are too smart to want the job. It's like who would want to be president? Ugh, what a rotten job. You know half the people are going to hate you. Half the people are going to hate you. That's their job is to hate you because they're not your half. So there you go. <laughs> Politics in a nutshell. I always said that if you get if you want to know if if the person in in charge is a really good person, it, it uh, they have to get shot <laughs> because Oh god. <laughs> because well, uh, those people they wouldn't allow them to like 
let's disarm and help everybody and have a good world. Is that oh we can't make money on that? Uh, yeah, follow the money. Follow the money is always the the key. Because there's so many in history that get shot, you know, that were trying to do good things and they end up dead, you know. So I always think uh, that's a good sign. There's this famous joke, or if not, I'm not famous, but famous to me, a joke that the comedian Bill Hicks did, where he, uh, yeah, where he lists all these people who got shot, like, and then at the end he says, Reagan, Ronald Reagan, wounded. Yeah, <laughs> only wounded. I like his I like his joke about um he was um making Jesus jokes in Texas. So at the end of the show there were a couple of good old boys and they were very offended at his jokes about Christianity. Quite offended. Aggressively offended. So he said, Well, you guys are Christians, right? They were like, Yeah. And he said, Well, then forgive me. And he said, I was up in that tree for about six hours after that. <laughs> so, you know, um, love Bill Hicks. I would love to hear his take on the world today. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, it would be funny. Um, yeah, the, what when I discovered uh, punk rock when I was like 13, 14, uh, what attracted me to it was, was that it, was didn't care so much about the rules and broke rules and, uh, and I guess in a sense that could be metaphysical like trying to think outside the box and uh, it's deconstructionism that's what punk rock is deconstructionism it, the, they were you know I think in the beginning complaining about it is so conformist this is supposed to be a vehicle for nonconformity and it's the most conformist thing you've ever seen in your life um, so that was a, a, and a beautiful artistic demonstration. Absolutely perfect. I mean, the genius of it. No, deconstruct it. I love that. Because I was very upset at things, how they were. And if you watch the news and that when you're 13, 14, you can't really do anything about it. So I was very, very angry. And also... Uh, have uh, like uh, father abandoning issues and that but so I was very angry and in in punk rock uh, you know if you go to punk concerts and that it, it's it's it can be very aggressive and it can be uh, I wouldn't uh, violent is the wrong term yeah, cathartic yeah so you can trash around and push each other but everything's fr everything's friendly but you get the same you get that adrenaline, at least as a guy, you get that adrenaline out of you uh, instead of doing violence, you know. Well, look at it this way. If we're coming from, from your point of view of, of trauma and adolescence hitting it and being aware of it, and you go to one of those shows, you get out the aggression, the anger you feel from the trauma, and you also reestablish a sense of, of tribal identity, a father figure. So you're dealing with, um, one, a trauma, and two, just normal male adolescence. There's a lot of energy happening there, <laughs> and it has to have a place to go. And what a beautiful place. There's, there's not a sense... And this is the thing. This is the difference in punk shows too, because they're they're all different too. It, the mosh pit, is I guess what moshing around, um, for a bunch of guys. At about fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, yeah, that's a great place to take all that energy. It's a it's a dance. Let's face it, it's an all boy dance. Okay, good. <laughs> You go there and, like I said, you have a sense of tribe, a sense of belonging, and you work out a bunch of energy, and you kind of clear your head, and now, now you're available to have innovative ideas for yourself, um, healing. Uh, that's, it's a great experience.
I also remember that when you're at that age, it's very scary to talk to girls, uh, like when you just hit puberty and that. Uh, but I always thought that girls that were into the punk rock scene were much easier to approach, you know. Yeah, more comfortable, you know, uh, shockingly gentle. That's that's the thing. The appearance is, oh, big meanie. Uh, no. Not big meanie. Um, this is a talk to the person. Look in their eyes. You can tell in an instant what a person really is. And it's not through their visual. This is what I wear. This is my costume. Now, what are you behind the costume? That's, we have, um, well, we should be able to have good instincts to judge a person, not by the look, but by the feel. You can feel off a person malice or compassion or intellectualism or hurt. You can feel that off a person. And that is an actual that's a human, that's an element of the human composition that is um, available for all humans to be able to read another human. We've got all these great um, automatic instincts to size people up. And we don't use them. We're not taught how to use that. And part, and part of the reason we're not is because by the time we hit 15 or 16, we're so pulverized from trauma and um, lack of proper education on what it is to be a human and basic education that we're a basket case. We're, we're a, a rolling and very angry group of traumas just looking for something to slam up against. And then the mosh pit gets violent and very uncomfortable. Yeah. I, I grew up in Scandinavia and the, the death metal scene is very big here. And so uh, if you uh, get into the punk rock scene, the death metal scene is like a close neighbor. So those people kind of mix. So I, I knew a lot of death metal people when I was young. And the death metal people can look very scary. But when you get to know them, they're, like, they're all like teddy bears. They're the least scary people of all, even though they have like the devil on their T-shirt and like, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah. Upside down pentagram and all the whole, the whole nine yards, all the effective accruterments that go with with the style um yeah and i knew this guy this one death metal guy he he had a a part-time job in a morgue and i thought that was so cool because oh lordy (laughs) it was it was so perfect you know like he he was a death metal drummer and he worked in a morgue you know like he he had perfect unfortunately yeah he never got famous or or made it or like that with his band but if he did it would have been a great story for his character you know. <laughs> but um, uh, so uh, did you know who Manly Hall was when you started working for him oh yeah it was because of his uh, secret teachings of all ages we'd gotten the book um, Ronnie got it as a birthday present we had to put it on, on layaway though um, I think it was $50 and it was a big old, beautiful, like, I don't know which edition, um, but it was old <laughs> and um, we were so, mine's just so severely blown, um, a chapter every day and it would just be amazing and, and it, Obviously, I'm I'm really into history and psychology, so it just and and nature, and it just checked every interest box for me, and Ronnie also. So I thought he I thought Mr. Hall was dead because it was such an old book. I figured, well, he's got to be an old guy who wrote an old. It's an old book. It's written by an old guy, and and I my first question was, how long has he been dead? And Ronnie wasn't quite sure. 
said, but this is from, you know, the first edition was 1928. Um, so he's probably long gone. Well, we were talking about the book to a friend with a friend. And she said, oh, no, Manley Hall is still very much alive. He's, he's down in Las Velas at his, at his center. Is what? PRS, Philosophical Research Society. It's a center down in Las Velas, famous place. You should, you should go and see one of his lectures. And that started it. It, it was just it's such a marvelous thing, this, this white-haired old man sitting in this giant chair and he was so intelligent and he could speak so effortlessly on his subject and, and so much knowledge. And it was really like somebody who was simply so enthusiastic about what they studied and they just couldn't wait to share it with everyone. And as he was speaking, um, he seemed to literally speak directly to an experience I had walking up to PRS, which was noticing these purple and gold um, weeds growing out of the cement. And he described how the soul is, is even in the midst of the harshest condition, able to flower and come through and experience enlightenment. And I thought, this guy is amazing. That's just what I saw when I looked at those flowers. And after the lecture, I, I, I turned to, to Ronnie and I said, oh, who was that guy? Because Manly Hall must be amazing if this guy. And Ronnie was kind of puzzled about what I just said. And he was like, Tamara, that was Manly Hall. I was like, oh, this guy is amazing. I don't know what it was. that Somehow it, it just, I think I was, I was so thoroughly amazed at that moment that I kind of went dyslexic and and just decided that was that wasn't Mr. Hall there there's another Mr. Hall um but nonetheless Ronnie had the same experience um of him seeming to speak directly to a thought and we later found out that hundreds hundreds of people actually experienced that when experiencing Mr. Hall's lecturing and I, I I can't explain that, but I was so thrilled with with how wonderful this guy was. What a great influence he was on us. That um, Ronnie was equal, even more enthusiastic. He was like, "Let's volunteer," and I was like, "Okay." And but no no housekeeping for me. I I was I just stopped doing a housekeeping gig and. I was kind of done with cleaning. And um, so when we went there, uh, we were interviewed for volunteering, and, and I got a gig right away. Ronnie could not, wasn't good with typing or business machines or filing and all, all those things I learned in a bank. And... Um, and had training and all that stuff. So I, they were like, oh, great. We love, we love secretarial work around here. When can you show up? And, um, but Ronnie, they were just like, well, you know, and on a whim, the interviewer said, um, do you speak any languages? And I was like, uh, Valley. And, um, the, um, lady turned to Ronnie and he said, well, I got, French and I've got Russian and I've got German and I've got uh, and she was like really okay I'll jot that down well we don't have anything for you Ronnie but Tamara show up and what happened was um I guess Mr. Hall got wind of the, the languages and asked to see Ronnie literally just slid this galley over to him which is um the sheets of his alchemical bibliography and said, I hear you can speak languages. I need somebody to go over some stuff. <laughs> Ronnie was like, um, 
okay, uh, I'm not really qualified to do this. And he's like, you'll be, you'll be fine. Well, as soon as Ronnie walked out the door, one of the ladies who were in charge of PRS, as well as Mr. Hall, um, grabbed the galley and said, no, and took it away. So I guess she was looking at the way we looked and went, no. Um, but she cleans up okay and let her be a secretary. Um, that same day, Mr. Hall's personal secretary contacted Ronnie and said, you'd be at Mr. Hall's office at 9 a.m. And um, when he arrived, um, Mr. Hall slid the galley over to him again and said, young man, I want you to do this. I want you to edit this for me. I will help you all the way through it. I'll be there every step of the way. I'll check your work. You can look at any book I have in my collection and take them home with you, whatever. But I will check your work and you will do this. And um, also, don't let anyone take this away from you. You answer only to me. So that's how we ended up getting started in metaphysics and um, working with Mr. Hall. So he must have make, made a choice not based on anything but like intuition uh, because, because it, that wouldn't be the normal way to go about getting somebody to do, do that particular job. Yeah. He, he just, he liked, I think he just simply liked the fact that Ronnie could do languages. He showed up at the right time. He had, a, he was obviously sincere. And, um, so he said, you'll do fine, kid. Give yourself a chance. You'll increase your your knowledge anyway if you do this. It'll be great. <laughs> Maybe it's also good if you hire somebody who's a professional to do that job. Maybe you get a lot of baggage also. Oh, look, he, he came into conflict, conflict with who he referred to the other editor as a contractor, and the contractor wasn't doing what... Mr. Hall wanted. Mr. Hall wanted to take certain things out, and the guy refused. <laughs> he said, um, this is my project, and I hired you to do what I want you to do. Okay, well, fine. I'll get someone else. Or I maybe in that case, I got someone else. What um, did, uh, did, he, did he listen to music? And if so, what kind of music was, was Hall into? Lives, John Denver. Um, I don't know if they played Wagner in that house. She was German. <laughs> Although I think she did like him. Um, <laughs> no. Um, but yeah, Mr. Hall was um, very low key. Could watch a little television. Yeah, they were they were both readers and writers. So. Um, yeah, that's what they did prim primarily. Um, I think they would they liked having dinner with people and, you know, gentle repartee. Um, although Marie would usually roll into her work and commandeer the whole evening and, you know, get some charts out and explain shit. Um But it was always good fun, you know. I've um read the the secret teachings many times and uh, some other works as well but mainly that one and uh, i always Im imagine when i read uh, your book about uh, your experiences with mr hall uh, uh, it uh, that's what that's how i imagined him like uh, when i imagined what he would be like to hang around uh, I, so it was kind of like the way i imagined him to be uh, uh, because sometimes uh, some uh, an author can be completely different than who you think it is, you know. Well, judging him by, let's say, judging by looks again, um, when you see that <laughs> that dashing, almost oh, Barrymore or Errol Flynn looking portrait, in, in when you walk into the the auditorium, or or when he was looking a little gamey right before he. Um, uh, married Marie, Marie decided he needed more fresh air. 
um, <laughs> enough eating dusty old books. So um, she cleaned him up. And were you, um, was it, uh, when he died, was it sudden or was it, did it, was, did everybody know it was going to happen for a long time or? I think for a long time, for when he hit around 85, people were always taking bets the, the way people do on imminent death, but he was fine. Yeah. The, the news of his death came to me um, after we had been gone for a very long time. And um, we'd get updates from Arthur, um, Arthur Johnson, who was still working there as his driver and would audio engineer. So we read about it in the papers. And um, the, unfortunately, um, I I left because I thought that Fritz, his new caretaker and assistant, um, was up to no good. And I, the first thing out of my mouth when I when Ronnie said, "Oh look, Mr. Hall has died," it's there's a big art, article in L.A. Weekly, and I went, "Was it Fritz?" being, you know, a snotty punk rocker. And he went, yeah. And that was um, kind of devastating. Part of that's, this is part of the reason why I, I waited a really long time before I wrote about it, because it was just, you know, it's, it's a terrible thing to look back and go, oh God, I was the only one saying that. And um, was I... How could I own, be the only one that saw this coming? That this guy was up to no good, and it 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 still kind of stings, to be honest. Um, speaking of traumas, um, so yeah, it. I don't know. He, we never kind of like I said. There's always the the death pool that people put on older people, which is you know, creepy, and um. But yeah, he was doing okay when we left. He was fine. I left him in good condition. <laughs> I always get the sense that he um, he's not as well known today than he was maybe 20 years ago or something like that. Uh, so hopefully uh, he, there will be a resurgence. Uh, but th that's my impression of like uh, the the... the esoteric world that it's his name doesn't come up as much as it maybe did before uh, well i think you're on to uh, something there's an ebb and flow to this um and especially something like a book and especially a book like the big book so it will come in and out of fashion but it's a staple of the metaphysical community um the information isn't that great but you know what it's a staple of the metaphysical community. This is part of the history. Um, as a historian, he put together stuff that may have been faulty, but he put what everyone has based their stuff on into one place. Um, th that's a great thing. That will always be there. You know, that we do, you know, even though I had put down, um, certain historical um, thoughts as as more um, jaundice still, and I'm saying that, that Mr. Hall's information wasn't all that great either, this is still a very historical, very important book. And I frankly, um, am sh I've been shocked at how many people actually knew who Mr. Hall was when I I went and started the book. Um, I was like, whoa, you got, wow. Okay. Um, so I think that will always be there. Um, like I said, that's the beauty of books, the printed word. Um, and I, I, the lectures are the other thing. You can actually hear him. In some, you can see him when he, he's very old. 
Um, but you can you can hear some of those lectures. Arthur was so good; he, he redid all those lectures so that people could hear them. Um, and they are wonderful. That is truly an extraordinary speaker, an extraordinary um, mind discussing um, culture and metaphysics, alchemy, um, the mystical experience, the psychological experiences. Um, huh, pretty flawlessly for 60, 70 years. That's freaking genius. It's a brilliant artist. Um, that that doesn't go away. And it shouldn't. The, those are some of the things that we need. That's our cultural human heritage. To have that individual experience with spirit. To have that mystical experience. To be a spiritual being as well as an intelligent human. That's what everybody's going for. That's what we should be going for. That and making sure everybody has enough food and clean water. Maybe that's why also uh, punk rock scene goes well with with uh, uh, feminism, and that is because in in esoteric and occultism, the divine feminine is more important than in mainstream society, where it's very male god oriented. Oh yeah, the big three. Um, yeah. It, it, <laughs> Yeah, it's nice to include the other half of the world. <laughs> Because in many, most, in, not all, but in general, if you uh, look at all the different indigenous cultures, it's usually uh, a, a goddess more than a god. Just look at the Trinity. Um, there's, a, there's a real example. The Trinity is what? Male, female offspring right mom dad baby now i mean in egypt ta sekhmet nefertem but in the patriarch of religions father son and holy ghost it's all dudes <clears throat> that is not that's not going forward that's not forward thinking that's it stops right here Sorry. So, have you? Um, are you? Are you still active with your band, uh, Lucid Nation? And uh... well, right now, I mean, I I am like up to my chin with writing. I mean, everything is writing right now. It's the creativity turned that way, so that's where I flow, and um, the band is always there. I mean, there's, Ronnie wants to do his own record, his solo record. Um, I'd like to play on that. Um, and we just, but we've, we've been so focused on writing right now, we can't really do anything else. And it does take a lot of focus, you know. I wrote, when I first wrote Ordinary Extraordinary, I It was half half of it was just I was writing it for Arthur as a joke and just writing down everything I could remember. And um, yeah, and it changed and it became an actual published book, much to my surprise. And that's because it was mothered along by uh, Norma D. Ellis and, and um, inner traditions and. Um, Many editors, wonderful editors, wonderful women. A couple guys too. <laughs> And where can people get it? Um, I think just about anywhere. It's it's um, published by Inner Traditions. You can definitely go there. But bookstores, go to your local bookstore. They're so wonderful. I love bookstores. They're the best museums and bookstores. It's they're harder to. They're not as many as they used to be. And those, um, uh, uh, the, the corporate ones, I don't like so much. Uh, they also have the the top ten books, you know, like those kind of bookstores. I think it's going to be like vinyl. 
uh, it'll never die completely. Uh, CDs can die off, but vinyl remained, you know, and it even increased in sales uh, after CDs. So it's like it, it won't go away like books, uh, even though you can read them and have tablets and that. Like I still read physical books. I, I've tried those Kindle ones, but they don't really... Because I always smell the book. If it, and all every book smells different. <laughs> there is... It's not the same. It's not the same. Because you can stop. Everybody loves a new book smell. <laughs> and nothing is as thrilling as old book smell. You never know what you're going to get with that. If you really want to understand female human psychology, especially in certain decades... Um, all you have to do is go to, you know, this is the beauty of used bookstores. I loved perusing old cookbooks because women would put all kinds of stuff in those cookbooks, um, whether it be personal writing, um, what they're, they're, you know, how they functioned through the world, um, what they considered valuable, what they liked and disliked about recipes. Um, you could find a world of human experience in somebody's cookbook, um, a used cookbook. Um, and it's gotta be old, you know, 70s, 60s, 50s, 40s. You're gonna learn a lot about how things really were. I, I don't think bookstores are going to go away because there is not only the tactile pleasure and the control that you have with an actual physical book, um, this has been our form of communication for generations and generations and generations. The Egyptians were really into writing. Um, look what they did with it. Uh, so it's going to be there. That's just part of being human is the printed word. Um, it, it's it's completely incorporated into our DNA. Um, as far as music, music is part of being human. It is incorporated into our DNA. It will always be there. It will it will like you said with feminism. It will mutate. It will manifest in different ways, but it will be there. Um, this is part of the human condition. This is the part of the human experience. It is what makes us human to write down our stories, to write down the words. Well, I thought we were going to close with one of the songs uh, from Lucid Nation called Fubar. Could you talk a bit about that song? Fubar was recorded in our studio at home, and we recorded it with Jody Bliley and um, I believe Denise Saffron. And um, it's... It was part of my um, ecological anxiety. And plus, I, we were also, I was um, going through a phase where I was fascinated with um, World War II abbreviations and um, phrases. Um, FUBAR, fucked up beyond all repair. And... Um, Yes, other phrases. A, a wing nut with a screw loose. Look that one up. It's hilarious. Um, and so that this is my ecological um, cry in the wilderness. Cool. Well, thanks a lot for being on the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. Freedom is in the mind. You politician. Hey, you want the
If you like this podcast, but want to feast your eyes as well as your ears, perhaps you should head over to YouTube and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Simply search Natural Born Alchemist channel on YouTube and it shall appear. Or click the link in the program notes of this episode. I put a lot of effort into the videos I make and hopefully you'll enjoy them. If you want to support me, please subscribe on YouTube and even better, leave a like or a nice comment. YouTube is severely lacking in nice comments, so with your help, let's change that. Anyway, I hope I will see you there.